Raising black children in the United States can be really scary. And as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear. And I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to the Parenting for Liberation podcast. I am your host, Trina Green-Brown. Each episode, I'm joined by other Black parents, and we discuss our journeys to push past our fears to raise our beautiful Black children to be whole, free, and liberated. Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in bed. No more. This is Trina with Parenting for Liberation. I am here with Cassandra Lane, who is an author of an incredible book that we're going to get into. The name of the book is We Are Bridges. It was published by Feminist Press, which also published my book. So shout out to Feminist Press. Yes, her book was the winner of the Louise Merriweather First Book Prize, which it definitely deserved because it's an incredible book and we're going to get into it. She is the editor-in-chief of LA Parent Magazine. And Cassandra interviewed me for LA Parent Magazine about my book. So shout out to LA Parent Magazine as well. She previously worked as a newspaper staff reporter. She received an MFA in creative writing from Antioch University here in LA. She's worked as a high school teacher, college admission advisor, a a senior communications writer, and as a community relations manager for the LA Dodgers. So she is definitely LA, but this is not, (laughs) this is home for her now. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And she lives with her teen son and husband here and has two bonus adult sons. Welcome, Cassandra. Hey, hey, Trina. Thank you. I'm so excited. I am too. I really love your book. And so folks who may know me or may not know me know that I struggle with reading a full book. I have to get the audible version, but I can't just listen. I have to see the words too. So sometimes I'll get the, the actual book. And then I'll have to start reading along. And then once I get into the groove of the book and I get acclimated to the person's voice, then I can just listen on Audible. So I often purchase folks' books in multiple formats. So I definitely believe in supporting authors by buying more than one book, but I buy them for myself. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Let's get into it. We are Bridges. So the title of the book, I believe, is a play on words or it has multiple meanings, right? Um, Mm-hmm. Do you Absolutely. want to talk about the title? Mm-hmm. I think of it as Bridges as the name of your forefathers and also mm-hmm. as mothering as Bridges. Are we as, as as storytellers, as women as Bridges? I would love for you to get into that because in the book you name mothers and women as memory and you talk about there's a beautiful line that says women carry universes in their bodies. And so just, mm-hmm. just starting from the title of the book, like you're already saying a particular mm-hmm. thing and would love for you to to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I love that. So this book that I've been working on for so long has had a million titles. And (laughs) at one point it was called Just the Bridges because, yes, it's based on my great-grandfather, Bert Bridges, who was lynched around 1904 in Mississippi. So Bridges, of course, that name, right? And I also just love Bridges, period, as their beautiful structures. I love what they symbolize. And I was talking about the story just online. I've talked about it over over the years on social media. And a cousin saw a post that I had about Bert and his love. My great-grandmother, Mary, her name was Mary. And she was still in love with him on her deathbed in her, nine, in her 90s. And she was crying about their lost love and how beautiful he was, how much she loved him. And so I wrote a little tiny post about their love story and how it was cut short by racial violence. 
a cousin who didn't know the story about who our biological ancestor was. My grandmother remarried, and that's the name that the family took on, Buckley. She, the cousin saw this post and said, oh, my God, I want to know more. I didn't know this story. And she said, we're not Buckleys. And then she put hashtag I am Bridges. I just thought, wow. And I said, that is absolutely right. And then I answered hashtag we are Bridges. And it just stuck. Because, yes, we are Bridges biologically. That was our last name. My grandfather's father that he never met because he was lynched. But we're also Bridges because... Whatever, whatever. There are things that we can do to try to connect to our history, despite the gaps, despite what was stolen. So I, it became this declaration of reclaiming the past. Mm, I love that. I love the reclamation mm-hmm. of the past. I love that we are bridges. So your family, your family name is Bridges, but also as people across, I think about generational connections, right across. Um, time and how like some even us as the, this individual 30s and our 40s can be the bridge between our ancestors and our descendants right we can be the yes. blue line right yeah. so yeah I love that yeah. I love that I was remiss to provide a brief summary of the book and I actually think I want to invite you to do that before we get into the details of the book and get into some of the questions for you to share a little summary about what is this book about for folks who may have not picked it up just yet Mm-hmm. Sure. So this book started off as an exploration of that racial domestic terrorism. And I was obsessed that something like this had happened in my bloodline. And I wanted to look at what were the repercussions, not just on the immediate family, certainly on the immediate family, my great great grandmother and my grandfather, but also just intergenerationally. How was this passed on? My grandmother a great grandmother didn't want to talk about it. And so all we had ultimately was his name, Bert Bridges, the fact that he was beautiful and handsome and fine, as she would say, and that he was very proud. And the white people didn't like that. They did not appreciate that he didn't cow down to them. And they lynched him. And we don't know, you know, the full story. There are no records. And so I'm telling this story by creating imagining who he was, what their love was like, I start creating, fictionalizing a story to honor that memory, to honor the fact that this was a man who had lots of dreams, I'm sure, lots of potential, and this beautiful love that they had. And then around 2006, yeah, in 2006, actually, I found out that I was pregnant. And the story took on another life. I turned the lens on to the the women in my family, starting with great-grandmother Mary, who was a lynching survivor, and my grandfather's wife, grandmama, and my mother, because I wanted to, I was way out in California, I'm from Louisiana, and I wanted to connect to these women and their sense of strength and survival as I was way out here with no blood relatives and pregnant and not sure, you know, how to go, how to be a, the best mother I could be. And so they came, started weaving the story of Bert Bridges, the women in my family, motherhood, and then my pregnancy and, and journey to motherhood. So it's, it weaves those two, that contemporary and that ancestral story. And it is beautifully written. 
when I say like you you. are an incredible writer and weaver and storyteller. It's a beautiful, compelling story of family and lineage and legacy and motherhood and womanhood. And each mm-hmm. each story that you tell, whether it be about your ancestors, whether it be about your your grandmother or your great grandmother, your great grandfather, or it be about you and your own pregnancy, your own relationships, you know, more modern and contemporary, each story pulls me in in a very captivating way, right? And so you you just tell these stories and and some of them I resonate with so deeply. You know, um, I'm like, oh my goodness, that is yeah. me. Oh my goodness, that is me too. Mm. So I see myself mm, in your story it. many times, many, many times. And so I want to get into that a little bit. Even the piece around that you just shared around that you didn't have a lot of information about the story and that your mm. grandmother or your great grandmother didn't tell, talk about it much. Like it was, it was something to stay mm-hmm. silent about. And, right. and your book, your book makes me think about Audre Lorde's quote around my silences had not protected me and your silences will not protect you. It's yeah. like an embodiment of that because you're revealing either some deep, hard truth or unearthing mm-hmm. a story that has been buried for so long. And it also makes me think about Zora Neale Hurston's quote around if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. And so I feel like your book mm-hmm. is intentionally trying to to name the pain and the trauma of a very violent, violent attack, a violent murder, and that if we are silent about it, they'll kill you and say that you enjoyed it. And you're intentionally being like, no, this was not enjoyable. And what was the impact of that trauma 70 plus years ago and how that impacts you, your family, your legacy to this day? Yeah, absolutely. I love those quotes. And, you know, I know that that's what Grandma Mary was trying to do, protect herself, maybe protect us from having that hate, you know, and and I understand that, but at the same time, it's not my philosophy. And not only did we not, do we not enjoy being killed? It's it's just not okay either. It's like, I think that there's, you know, a faction of society who they know it's horrible. They don't think it was, it's something, you know, of course it was, it's difficult, but they think, okay, that was so long ago that you're okay now. And the truth of the matter is that, no, it wasn't okay then. It's not okay now because it's still impacting us. And look at the modern day lynchings that are, that are taking place. We like to look at the past and say, oh, that was so long ago, or how could people back then have let such atrocities happen? And yet here we are in the 21st century, and it's still going on in so many ways. So it just reminds me that you cannot disconnect the past as present and from the future. So yeah. my philosophy is to keep societal, you know, ills, personal traumas, family traumas, because I need my, I need my son and whoever comes after him to know this is what has happened. Maybe you can take this and it will be a shield for you. You don't, you know, repeat the same mistakes. You're aware of, I just, I just don't want him living um, in a world with rose colored glasses, even though I want him to have black boy joy. Like, how do you embrace both of those? How do you embrace, you know, the knowledge and wisdom that comes from the reality of living in this country and at the same time, joy, embrace your joy and your beauty. I do believe that you can hold both of those. 
Yes, yes, you can and we must. We must in order for us to survive and to thrive. We must have the ability, as Audre Lorde would say, uh, we must have the ability to love and resist simultaneously. And so I think reading in your book is a lot around simultaneity, right? Even what you just shared about Mary, how do we honor that her goal was to protect, right? And how do we honor Mm -hmm. her strategy without criticism? You offer a lot of grace for the folks in your family and in your community. And I really appreciate that and admire that. And I learned a lot in my own experience Mm -hmm. with my family. I'm like, okay, I need to get a little bit more grace the way that Cassandra has. Um, And you talk about the impacts of generational trauma, breaking generational curses, but how it's so important to know the history and know that information so that you can be privy to it so that then you can create alternative paths without negating the learnings from that, right? Um, I I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I appreciated that line in your book and I want you to talk about this. There's a piece, and I think you said it a couple of times, is I am no better than my blood. I am no better than my Mm. blood. And you, I'll read this line, it's on page 108. Look, I have my book in front of me. <laughs> it says, I am no, it, it's after you were talking about, it was a piece around like, are the men in my family cursed? What made some of them, you know, do harmful things? And it's a bigger crime, right? A big, like, what is the original sickness in our family and how Mary chose to suppress it? I mean, she's not fully to blame. Again, like you offering this grace and then you acknowledging, I am no better than my blood. All I have tried mm-hmm. to do decipher the equation so that I can keep what worked well for us and disconnect that which has caused us to malfunction as a family and as a people. And so I want Definitely. you to speak to that, 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 that experience of, of keeping and then letting go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That part was really difficult to write because I knew that it would touch, you know, it touched a nerve because it was something that happened in present day or recent history, and that's speaking of some incest that happened in the family. But at the same time, I felt that it was important to address it, at least somewhat, because I'm trying to connect the dots, right, about trauma and how it's passed on and what it means. And telling this story, I'm telling this story, hopefully, for the child that I was carrying in my stomach and the children that would come after him. And I didn't want to present a story that was just, you know, fluff or about the beauty and the riches of the of the people in our family. I wanted to tell the truth as much as possible. And so it was very difficult to write some of that. I really pared it down. I wanted to write a book that not only looked at, you know, societal ills and examined those And not only looked at what had been done, you know, the wrongs that had been done, perhaps to me, I wanted to also, in in even more, in an even more direct way, point the spotlight on myself in terms of that I had committed. Because again, I just think that that's how we grow. That's how we help others with their struggles. And so the book looks at all of those, those illnesses, all of those wounds, societal, family, and personal. Yeah, and it does it in a way that, to me, offers so much grace to the humanity of folks who may have caused harm. Even to yourself, you do share some of the things that I imagine were hard to share around your own experience and your own choices, things that people 
a lot of people feel shame around and don't talk about, like you were very bold and courageous in this book. And I want to honor that. And I know similar to like how you talk about your grandmother about like, you know, keeping things in the family and the family, because there's so much already external narrative and so much criticism and judgment and, and abuse and violence that black folks experience. And so we don't often yeah. like to share, you know, what, what we would say, like, don't air our family's dirty laundry. Right. But yeah. it's important for us to talk and, and share about the impacts, because I think when we talk about those things, we think that we're saying there's something inherently wrong with us. But really what it's getting mm-hmm. at, what you're getting at it is like, what are the roots of these decisions? What are the roots of the folks um, who cause harm? It, it, it's not that they're inherently exactly. bad people, right? It's the impact of trauma and slavery and oppression and the way that we as right. people were abused and violated and, and, and made to feel less than, right? And, and rendered powerless mm-hmm. as a people, the way we were mm-hmm. chastised. Like mm-hmm. that leads people to make choices. That leads people... Um, down paths. And so I, I appreciate the way you, you give so much grace in this book for yourself and for and other folks. Right. Right. I love that. I appreciate you saying that because again, yeah, I want to show the whole humanity of, of people and of our people, of black people. And that's humanity that's in this very broken world, right? In this very broken country. Um, yes, all of that got passed on all of the blessings and riches and those curses too. So that was my experience mm-hmm. <laughs> and experiment. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I want to say like, I learned and am learning through your storytelling, even like my relationship with my mother and the way that you describe, I similarly growing up with, as you, mm-hmm. I grew up saying, I didn't want to be a mom. Like I didn't want to have children. Yeah. I didn't want the responsibility mm-hmm. of children or child raising I wanted to just be free. And I mm-hmm. said that, I said that all the time. And when I got pregnant, my family was so confused. Like, wait, what? You're right And then here I, am right. with a, here I am with a whole organization called Parenting for Liberation, right? It's like, you don't even want to do this job. But there's a- So crazy. Right? So then I want you to tell yeah. a little bit about, <laughs> it's just like, it's, it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, right? That we were like anti-babies, like anti-kids, like, no, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Not in my lifetime. And your line was like, never, never, ever, ever. It was like very Oh, I was very adamant. (laughs) And I listened to you in the audible and you're like, never, ever. I was trying to bring that young woman. So, so, because that is exactly how I felt. It was, and I loved kids. So it's not, I know some people don't like kids, period. But I actually loved kids. I just didn't want any of my own. And yeah, like you said, I just associated that looking at the women in my family, I associated that with so much burden and heartbreak and, and I didn't want to take that path. I wanted that carefree path, traveling and eating out. (laughs) So absolutely. It's interesting that you, I didn't know you had the similar journey. It was very interesting. So that's what I was like. I was like, I saw myself in your book because I was like, oh my goodness, that was me. (laughs) <laughs> and and then I think the relationship, the piece that I also admired that I felt was very similar or not similar, but like resonated with me was just around your relationship to motherhood, how that evolved and changed. And, I, mm. and also like your childhood and like your experience of like the adultification of black girls, of black children to mm. be caretakers to their Absolutely. younger siblings and what the impact of that is. Mm-hmm. And you speak to when you became a mother or as you got older, the desire to build a closer relationship with your mother. And how mm-hmm. 
you began to see her differently as you became a mother. And so I just want to want to invite you to speak to just the the experience of motherhood, right? This is this is a podcast about parenting. And it's interesting, us yeah. two people who are parents and very active and vocal about parenting didn't want to be parents because <laughs> of the burden of motherhood and what that meant. So I want to invite you to, you know, share a little bit more about that and how your relationship with your mother has been able to grow through your experiences becoming a mother. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's interesting. I think sometimes the very thing we fight the most against can turn out to be, you know, such a place of liberation, which is the exact opposite of what I thought, you know, child rearing was, but it has been a very liberating experience for me on so many different levels. And my, since my mom, so she had five kids or has five kids and there's a big age gap between the first of us and the last of us. I'm 17 years older than my younger brother. So I got to see not up close because I was gone pretty much to college and, and then working by the, as he was growing up. But just in talking to her over the phone and visiting, I got to see that her parenting was changing with those younger children. And also they were boys, but the last two are boys. <laughs> so there were differences there. And I, I reflected on that, that she was less uh, uptight, less strict less angry. I mean, she was just in a really tough time in her life when she was parenting the three girls, my two sisters and I. And so that was interesting seeing that this one person, you know, had changed in her parenting style. And then when I became pregnant, there were things, you know, happening happening with my body that I was able to call her and talk to her about. And we hadn't had those kind of intimate talks about about the female body really since puberty, you know, her preparing us for puberty and kind of in a scary way, like anti-sex and all that stuff. But I was able to talk to her about this life that I was carrying. And she was so tickled because she thought I never was going to become a mother. And it was this kind of wedge between us and how different I was than she, my choices were so different than she, than her choices. So she just felt, I think, very, connected and needed. And I realized all the wisdom that she had. She, she talked about things that her mother had told her and things that older women had told my grandmother when she was coming up and, and going through her pregnancies. So my, my mom's an oral storyteller. I got a lot of, you know, in those conversations while I was pregnant and in the first few uh, years of mother, early motherhood, I got so many stories from her about the about herself and her experiences, as well as the other women in our family. And I got to, I loved seeing her hold her grandson for the first time. He was seven days old when she got a chance to fly out. And I just got to see her, you know, with this baby um, and step back. It was, it was interesting. It was just so surreal and beautiful to watch her without the, what I presumed was burden of motherhood when she was raising us. I just got to see her hold this child, my child, with this freedom, with this lightness, with this pure love, even though she didn't know him yet and wasn't here during the pregnancy. It was just automatic. It was just, and it just reminded me that that love, that family love can be automatic and there's no, you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to make yourself worthy. And so that connected me and it softened me towards her. 
And now my son is 13 years old. You know, he's had a phone now since he was 10 and he taught her how to download certain things on her phone and he makes sure that they chat. I talk to her over the phone, but he likes to see her face and she likes to see his face. So they're, you know, Google chat and I love their relationship. Their relationship doesn't have the same, you know, expectations and burdens that we had as I was growing up because it's, there's something special about the relationship between grand grandchildren and grandparents. And I don't know, I, I'm, I am that, again, that bridge between the two of them. And I love the intergenerational relationships. I think they're so important. So yeah, I, I mm. absolutely think that we've gotten closer because of that experience. But at the same time, I do want to reiterate that having children is not what all women need to do or should do. I'm all for child-free and I know that people, women are becoming more and more vocal about that. So that's one way. We had a different way where we spent part of our lives saying no children and then we've changed our <laughs> minds. There are women who, girls who want to be parent mothers and know, all, you know, that they want to have lots of children. And that's why there are just so many different pathways. And I just think we need to stop judging women for the choices they make. Amen. Say that louder for the people in the back that can't hear. Stop trying to police <laughs> women's bodies and tell them. You exactly. mentioned that your mom was a, a oral a oral storyteller and you are a print yeah. storyteller. And oh, she is. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious about how, like, it's so important, right? When we think about black history, mm-hmm. you think about school because you're, you know, you're an educator, or you've been an educator when you open a textbook. I also appreciated getting the little stories about you as an educator and how you brought in all mm-hmm. these other uh, things like music and hip-hop and beats mm-hmm. and rhythm into mm-hmm. you know, an English <laughs> workshop, right? It's so important. Mm-hmm. But when you typically mm-hmm. think about how Black history is taught today, it often begins with the transatlantic slave. And so mm-hmm. much of our generational history has been lost and deeply impacted across the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're doing an incredible job of, of archiving stories or telling stories similar to your mother being an oral storyteller. So can you talk a little bit about why it's important to archive our stories and how can we begin to document our narratives? Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so important. And that's one of my deepest regrets is that I don't have my grandparents' voices recorded. By the time, and I worked as a newspaper reporter, but by the time I, I graduated college and started working as a reporter, my grandparents um, were gone. And I have the memory of their voices, so especially with Grandmama Avis and Papa Houston, you know, I was always around them. I had siblings, but I loved being around my seniors and eavesdropping on their conversation. So I could have hit record at some point, especially as I got to, you know, middle school, high school, coming home for those first few years of college and visiting, but just didn't think about it. We take things for granted. And now I have this this child, right, who's almost 2,000 miles away from that history back in the South, and he longs for these stories. And I'm the, the, I'm the carrier of these stories and their voices and things, you know, little idiosyncrasies that, uh, and little things that they would say. He does a lot of research, you know, wants to know about Louisiana, you know, little accents and sayings and music and and food. So if it would be so, it would have been so wonderful to just hit play on something and let him hear 
his grand, his great grandmother, and maybe even great great grandma Mary would have been wonderful too. We only have one photograph of great grandma Mary, but I've made digital copies, and I'm trying to make sure that we keep that in the family. So de- definitely, if you have your people still alive hit record. Now it's so much easier with the technology that we have. You can record over the phone. Make sure that you have photographs, get copies of the photographs so that not just one person in the family has them. My mom kind of was hoarding everything. And so when I would go visit during the holidays, I would make (laughs) (laughs) it. She's like, what? I'm like, you weren't doing anything with it. And my sister, my middle sister is the same way. She loves, she's become like this antique collector and she collect it's interesting she collects um antiques around the time of Bert's lynching and and grandma Mary's you know coming of age and raising my my grandfather and so that's her way of examining that part of our history and then collecting what she can even in, even though those pieces don't belong to them these were pieces that were being used and created around the time of their youth um and fascinating. She just has a fascinating collection. So yeah, collecting items. You can also collect items, you know, that relate to that time period. Whatever items that you can collect that your family or just ask for, that just let them know that you're in- interested. I think a lot of times our seniors don't even feel like we're interested in their history if we're not asking because we're so busy with our, you know, contemporary lives, our daily lives. So just express interest open up, you know, create a space for them to, to talk about their past and, and hit record if they're open to it. Collect those photographs, buy, sometimes Bibles, depending on, if you know, what your religion is, if there is one. Bibles can sometimes, family Bibles can be a great place of for record because a lot of times people write down, you know, the births and deaths and, and the baptisms in those Bibles. I've found out some information that way. Collecting old house deeds. My mom was showing me, I think the last time I was visiting her, the house deeds to the house that we grew up in, which was also the house that she was born in, in 1953. And all of the times that my grandparents almost lost the house because of not having enough money and how something always, you know, they were always able to kind of stitch enough together. And it was like, you know, $200 here, $150 here, just throughout the years where they almost lost the house and were able to keep it. And now my mom has the deeds to the house. Um, The house is demolished, actually, but she has the deeds to the land, and that's still in the family. So any records that you have, yeah, any journals, make sure that you yourself are journaling and keeping your photographs because one day you're going to (laughs) be a senior, one day you're going to be an ancestor. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, so those are such good tips. And I have found myself doing those things. So I lost my father in January 2020, was not prepared. And the first thing mm. I did was scour my voicemails and like yeah. going through and finding yeah. videos. It was like, oh, I wanted to capture his essence. I wanted to capture his voice. Absolutely. I wanted to capture his, mm-hmm. his, you know, we had lots of photos because, you know, the cell phones, it's yeah. so easy to just snap photos. I but know. I wanted something I living. I wanted to like see him in a video or hear his voice. And I end up getting 
I went to Build a Bear and you can I used to work at Build a Bear in high school. And so I knew back then that uh-huh. you could record your voice like saying happy birthday or I love you and you can put it in the bear's like paw. And so I went mm. to the bear and I dressed it like my dad and I put his voice in each paw. So one of is him singing oh my birthday gosh. and one is him like singing this song and like cracking up. He was like rapping along to a song. And so like depending on what energy I'm in, I'll play one of these. Um and so it definitely was super important and, and I didn't have enough, you know, you never feel like you have enough, but I definitely was like, dang, I should record it more. So I definitely encourage folks to do that. And now my dad's mother is still alive. And I often do record her because she tells some like interesting stories that I'm like, I don't know where to place this. Is this real? When did this happen? Like there's not (laughs) context, but it's like a really good story. And so I'll record it and I'll write it down. I'm like, wait, what are these people's names? And what, what state were you in? Because she'll tell stories about like, she'll tell stories about how her mother, either her grandmother and her grandfather, like her grandmother worked, was a sharecropper, but her grandfather was the, like, was the son of the owner and fell in love with her as a worker. And like, they had to run away because Mm -hmm. it was illegal for them to be together. And I'm just like, I really wish I could find this story. She tells me. Oh, wow. And it's like, simple, you know, like, like she talks about like them hopping in the back of a freight train, like a train and having to like escape. And they were like covering themselves with, hey, like she tells a story and it is like, wow, like that is my history. That is that, amazing. Right. And it's like, now I'm like, I need to be like Cassandra <laughs> because <laughs> exactly. you, took, you took these stories and like you then used your own spirit guides connected to those ancestors that you've heard these stories about because there's not a lot of documentation of our stories, right? It is through these oral stories. No, no. But you did it's this, right. you created right. this magic with the, with the information you did know. You, you mm-hmm. created and crafted a story and experience to honor your ancestors, but also to help sense make and weave for yourself and for your future, you know, descendants. So tell us how folks can, because I don't know how to do that. How can folks honor the parts <laughs> that we don't know that we don't remember or how can we fill in the gaps when there's so many holes in our stories? Mm-hmm. I think for you, that's so amazing about your grandmother too. I think for her, you know, she's still here. Thank goodness. You can, there's no shame in asking her to repeat, you know, the story and maybe there you can get a fuller version. So you can have, I imagine that you could have several different recordings of her telling the same story and then, layer I do. in the detail. I do. Um, oh, okay. You do have that. Okay. I do. I'm like, tell me that story again <laughs> about <laughs> grandmama running on the train. Or sometimes she just tells it again. Like I'm not even asking her. Like she'll just be like, oh, did I tell okay. you about that time? Or she, so my mom does up. that. So she just keeps telling the same story and you, you know, you to respect your elders, you don't say, grandma, I know that story already. You go, I, I heard that already. You know, right. you just, really? <laughs> then what happened? Oh my goodness. The dog, the dogs were chasing it. Like, you know, you have to get into the story with them again. Cause I appreciate every time she tells me stories. Cause I couldn't get anything out of my maternal grandparents like she would just say I bet like she she'd be like I bet you do want to know and she wouldn't tell me (laughs) so I I don't know (laughs) I don't know that's so interesting well I would say that tells me that tells you right there you know how you said the story slightly slightly changes sometimes with each telling um I think memory is so fascinating the brain is so fascinating I mean memory is not it's not cut in stone, right? You can, two people can go and witness the same event and remember different things about that same event. 
And who's telling the truth? Who's not? Uh, there, I think truth exists somewhere in the middle of memory. And so once I was able to ex- to embrace that and embrace the flexibility of memory and how fallible it is, I was able to go into these imagined memories of my ancestors to fill in the gap. And at, at one point, you know, I just took away the genre name because the genre, calling it nonfiction or even creative nonfiction can be limiting because I'm clearly creating. I know their names and I know where they lived, but I have to fill in the holes and I wanted to tell a fuller story. And so by doing away with these limiting genre titles, I was able to just allow my imagination to open up and, and creating the character's one of the things that I did too was just, I thought about the people that I grew up around, some of the elders and the stories that, that, that they told and that influenced, you know, some, maybe some of the conversations between my characters that I created. But like, I think about the church ladies who came around Mary after Bert lynching and was trying to marry her off and everything, which that did happen. She did get married off pretty quickly because she had this child and they didn't think she you know, needed to be this mother, even though she didn't love this man. So it was very, it was easy for me to, ima- to imagine these church ladies, busybodies, thinking that they're doing the, what's best for her because I knew people like that. I knew women like that growing up. I know people like that. <laughs> so I think too, you're, you're okay? right. <laughs> even now, right? <laughs> they think they're doing the Lord's work, you're... but I don't think the Lord sent them. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think you pull from whatever you have when you have these gaps, because we didn't give ourselves these gaps. That's the then. So feel the liberty. I would say get rid of any limitations on the imagination and feel the, the liberty to pull from, you know, childhood memories, conversations that you have had from the people who are living or who were living and you you have recordings or memories or, or what have you. I also looked at what was going on, like similar to what my sister does with the antiques, looked at what was going on around the time of my great-grandparents' romance and then tragedy. So I looked at you know, what music was being created in in and around 1904. I looked at tons of newspaper clippings and some of those, you know, were lynchings. A lot of them were named lynching victims, but so many of them were unnamed. And so I found myself, you know, wondering, daydreaming, was this one Bert? Was this one Bert? So I looked at all of those pieces of articles. I looked at postcards. I have a postcard of a Native American girl that stayed at 1904. I just pulled in everything that I could pull in to try to create that time period and fill in the gaps. But I also wanted to make the gaps very tangible for the reader too, because I think that's that's the impact of not knowing your history. Like the the lack of knowledge, the lack of history is also very damaging. And so I wanted to capture those gaps. And I think that I tried to do that through structure, the short emotive chapters showing, you know, there was no birth certificate for Mary, but there was a death certificate. There was no birth certificate or death certificate for Bert Bridges, but I wanted to really hone in on that. And, and I thought about all of the pieces of 
paper and certificates that we have in today's time to quote unquote validate and prove that we were here, prove our existence. And I contrasted that with what they didn't have. Mm. So important, such important ways for us Mm -hmm. to fill in the gaps. I really appreciate the invitation and liberating ourselves from like, well, is this exactly what happened that, you know, you you Mm -hmm. have the liberty to fill in the gaps because we didn't create the gaps in the first place. White supremacy racism to create those gaps. And so we have all of the right to fill the gaps in, in the ways that Mm -hmm. can honor our people. And I believe that when we do have a deeper sense and understanding us as a people, and even as I think about us as parents and raising children, when we have a deeper understanding of where and who and what we come from, it gives us a, a stronger sense of self. So I'm curious about how through the writing of this mm-hmm. book and through your process, um, how does how does this practice of filling in those gaps and, and knowing who you are and where you're from and knowing those stories, how does that translate um, into your parenting? As you raise, you know, the the other side of the bridge, right, in your family, the future ancestors mm-hmm. and future descendants. Mm-hmm. I like the way, I love that question. And I saw that come up in one of the reviews, the way they described the book. You know, they say it's an exploration of intergenerational trauma, but also the forging of an identity. And I was like, oh, wow, that, that truly is what happened through this experience. This experience was a journey not that I didn't know who I was to some degree, but it was a journey in self-discovery, you know, really looking at where I didn't value myself and where that lack of confidence came from, What, how much of it was inherited because of white supremacy. But yeah, there's a certain sense of first accomplishment that I felt finally finishing it and then publishing it. And here is this here's this thing. It's not a, it's not some big bank roll. It's not a big, it's not acres and acres and 40 acres and a mule, but here's this package. Here's this book that holds so much. And it is, I do feel a sense of just fresh, new, stronger identity. My son, I see the pride in him when he talks about the book, when he holds the book, and it's something to pad, like seeing him physically hold it. It's like I'm passing on something. And again, it's beyond me. It's before me. It's after me. And that has given me such a sense of stronger foundation, even though there's so many gaps and value. I mean, I just do. I feel good and proud and definitely more of myself, which was always there, but I feel like I dug it out <laughs> and put it together. One friend said that it's for her, and she writes comedy, so it's TV, television comedy. So I know for her reading it, it might have been on the heavy side. And she embraced it. And she was like, you know, it felt like you were, even though you were digging into the pain, as you were doing that, you were putting salve on it. Not, you know, just with each chapter, there's digging, but there's also this salve. And that just, that was so beautiful to me. It made me feel teary-eyed because it made me think of my grandmother, especially Grandmama Avis, my mother's mother. She was always there with some remedy, <laughs> always there to whether you were a set in a bed of ants, red ants one time. And she was just always there, you know, kind of rough her admonishing me for, for not seeing the, the, the bed of red ants, but at the same time, her hands 
were gentle as she was putting on one of her homemade remedies uh, on my skin. So, yeah. Um, yes, I believe that. <laughs> I mean, your friend definitely, your friend and the reviewer online definitely captures um, some of the essence of, of of the book that you've been able to pull together in a way that it is, it's a beautiful, it's, it's, it's like a beautiful struggle. It's like, there is the pain mm-hmm. and there is the heaviness. But as your friend said, like, you don't just leave it. It's not like what people might call trauma porn. It's not that. It's not like it's right. just focus only on the trauma. It's the trauma. It's like unearthing the trauma to understand the why of who we are or who your family is as a people. Yeah. And also right. seeing the brilliance, the joy, the resilience, the the possibilities that come through, you know, you as you're in this journey. And then now also as you're a parent and raising the next generation. So it was beautiful to witness and to read. And I I appreciate you for sharing it. And so much of it resonates. I want to invite you if you want to share any closing words, or if you want to read a little piece from it before we close. Okay. All right. Let's see. Hmm. Did you have a particular part that you thought? going to be. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to read a piece. I was just like curious. I, I mean, there's a line that is actually it's in your prologue. It's on the first page that I was that has that sat with me just about as we talk about what freedom and liberation is. Right? We think about when we were like, no, mm-hmm. we don't want kids. Freedom meant a particular thing, and then you say, but mm-hmm. I'm other now, and freedom means something else to me entirely. And oh, I'll, you okay? I'll read that little short opening. Yeah. Okay. Is that good? Okay. Sounds good. This is a hybrid, a romance, a memoir, and a oh, fiction. It broke up. It didn't get oh, no. a horror. Okay. I look, I look, I got the book okay. open, so I'm like, I don't know what you skipping words. <laughs> oh no! <I> but <laughs> you're not. Sure. Okay, let me just turn. Sometimes okay. it's like the. It's, sometimes it's the position that you're in the house. Let me. I stood up. Okay. Oh yeah. This if story. Like, is a, oh, sorry, I was talking. Okay, sorry. Go, go, go. I'll mute myself. Oh. This story is a hybrid, a romance and a horror, a memoir and a fiction, forged out of what is known and what is unknown. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, we sang as children of the South, as Black children of the South. It was a rhyming wall we erected to protect us from harsh words hurled at our bodies, their mission to shoot venom, to curl our brown frame. The truth is that words, like sticks and stones, like ropes and whips, do injure. As we get older, we press to silence any and all language that elicits pain. But sometimes, buried in this suppressed language, is an ancestor, the power in a name. A different kind of hurt lingers in this stitched void. I wanted a creation story for my family, although what was lost, stolen, is long covered over by soil I will never be able to locate. When I was young, that was okay with me, the freedom of not being bound to the past, to all that heaviness. But I am a mother now, and freedom means something else to me entirely. I am pregnant with questions. 
laboring over the unanswered ones tucked in the bosoms of our nation, our ancestors, our living families, and even into my own heart. Here, I gathered the sticks, picked up the stones, went searching for the rope. Like a bird building her nest, there is filler, string, straw, scraps of paper, anything to make it hold, make it stick. Thank you. Thank you. Fingers. Thank you. Beautiful writing. <laughs> Folks, pick up We Are Bridges, a memoir by Cassandra Lane, published by Feminist Press. Do you want to tell folks where they can grab a copy? Awesome. Thank you so much, Trina. This was such a delight. Thank you for this wonderful, deep conversation. You can find We Are Bridges at Reparations Club. I love supporting our independent Black bookstores. So in L.A., it's at Reparations Club, which is Black and woman-owned. It's at Esawan. It's also at Skylight Books. It's at Romans. Online, it's at bookshop.org. And anywhere else, books are so Thanks. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Trina. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting for Liberation. I hope that something shared on this episode helps you on your journey to liberated parenting. To learn more about our other episodes, check out our website at www.parentingforliberation.org backslash podcast. Please like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you give us a good review. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back with thinking, time for thinking.